I have to admit, I was honored to be invited to preach tonight, and I kind of wondered why they wanted a Baptist in the pulpit. Then I realized your entire pastoral staff has left, and so uh, here I am. <laughs> My wife, Caroline, and I attend our little Baptist church in the morning, Reformed Baptist Church, but we are usually here on Sunday nights. We live nearby, and our little church doesn't have an evening service, and we've actually really enjoyed the series through 2 Corinthians. There have been some wonderful expositions. I remember one brother who actually complained he had a bit of a difficult text, but I really have no such complaint. I feel like I kind of won the preaching lottery tonight. Um, it's a text that includes a verse that Spurgeon says, this is one of the most remarkable verses in all of Scripture. And so I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16 to the end of the chapter. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Uh, the commentator Philip Edgecombe Hughes states of this passage, he says, we are on the threshold of one of the most important eschatological passages in the New Testament. Eschatology is just a big word that means last things. And I have to admit that when I was converted in the early 70s, eschatology, prophecy, was a really hot topic. And maybe some of you are old enough to remember the late great planet Earth. And others of you probably have read the Left Behind novels. And you might look at this passage and say, I see nothing in this passage about a rapture or a millennium or the European Union or the Russians or anything like that. How can this be about eschatology? Well, as a biblical counselor and a pastor, I love eschatology for what it is meant to give us practically. And quite frankly, tonight, for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, they need eschatology. Uh, my wife and I spent six years in Saudi Arabia, and we have some small sense of what it must be like for believers tonight in that part of the world. They need a hope beyond this life. And I think as you study what the Bible says about prophecy and last things, these are not merely to help us fuel debates between the dispensationalists and the covenant theologians over how to draw our charts. But if you look at the purpose of these passages, it's to encourage us to live in readiness, and it's especially to encourage those who are suffering. Paul, as he writes this, has already told us in the preceding context some of his own suffering. He's writing to believers in the first century who were suffering, as Kevin said last week, uh, paper plates. And believers today are tempted to lose heart. And that's actually the passage begins. We do not lose heart. What do you say to the missionaries who have spent many years, perhaps many of the last 20 years of relative openness in Afghanistan who are now being driven away and maybe they can get out, but the churches they helped to plant and the believers they discipled may not be, be able to get out and everything seems hopeless. Uh, what do you say to believers in China as their government continues to constrict their freedoms and people, I had the privilege of teaching a few years ago, I wonder if they are still meeting freely. 
And you say, well, those are not our problems right now in this room, but we too have affliction. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus on some level will be persecuted, but also Jesus warned in the world we will have trouble. I have a family I care about a great deal, and just recently their 50-year-old dad passed away, and you're left with a wife and and kids, and they they are experiencing affliction after a seven-year battle with cancer. I have another friend who's 40 who's beginning a battle like that. He's got five small children. You have a caregiver where a man whose wife he's been married to over 50 years, and she has dementia, Alzheimer's, and she doesn't recognize the children anymore, and she barely recognizes him, and he really can't ever leave. And they thought about grandchildren and travel, and now he's just a caregiver. Or you think of the single woman, and she always imagined that one day Prince Charming would come and sweep her off her feet, and uh, she'd have a family, and now Prince Charming has not yet come, and the years are going by, and there's a loneliness. And sometimes she even feels that, like in church that it's all designed for the families, and, and what about us? Or the family that has the child, but the child has come out as gay or transgender, and they're very hostile to parents who are believers. And what I think we have here is wisdom from God to speak to people in really hard situations. And these glorious eschatological realities help us not to lose heart when we experience affliction. And there are contrasts here, and some have noticed three contrasts. I think it's really one contrast made in three ways. Your your outwardly decaying self is being renewed inwardly. Your present suffering is actually producing glory and your focus is already turned away from what you can see in this present decaying world to an unseen glorious eternity. And one thing I want you to notice overall as we went through the passage is it's not just saying there's something gonna happen in the future, just look forward to it. He describes here with each of these three aspects of the contrast, something that is now happening. And that's really, really important. You know, the Bible acknowledges the reality of present suffering. It doesn't deny it, as the health and wealth heretics might. But it also says God is doing something right now good in your suffering. So first of all, in verse 16, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Uh, you're, you're getting the point already, many of us anyway, that the outer self is wasting away. We just finished the Olympics, and you see all these people mostly in their 20s, and they're achieving great things. And then you see the guys that are in their 50s and their 60s that can't do it anymore. And some of them need walkers to get around, and and the body is deteriorating. I recently reached the age that both my father and my grandfather retired at, somewhat stunningly to me. I have no interest in doing the same, but one eschatological hope, small e, eschatological hope in America is retirement. The idea that if you work hard for 40 years and save your money, then you're going to have this glorious time at the end of life where you can play golf and go swimming and travel. And yet as the body wastes away, your cardiologist said, no more long runs for you. You may find as you get older, you spend more time at the doctor's office than the golf course. It's a counterfeit eschatology. And when he says that our outer self is wasting away, I think we think about the body, but I think really it has to do with everything that's attached to this world which is falling apart. 
And I can see when I'm around people who are suffering, it would be easy to lose heart in light of this reality. It can be easy to lose heart as you're watching the news and you think about believers in Afghanistan and Iran and other places. And it just seems like if, if God is for us, why is this happening? <laughs> if, if he's on our side, it seems like he could kind of do a better job of making things work well. But then we think of our savior and in Isaiah 53, when it says of him in this life, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look on him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We have a savior who suffered and who calls us to walk in his steps. In the first sermon in this series, Dr. Kruger pointed out how in South Charlotte, sometimes our prosperity can keep us from drawing near to God. And a good thing about hardship is it makes eschatology more important. But there's wonderful news in verse 16 because it doesn't just say, you're, I mean, you know your outer self is wasting away, but it says your inner self is being renewed. And this is like present ongoing action. Uh, simultaneous with the body wasting away as you're united with Christ, who has rescued you from this evil age, spiritually, you are being transformed into the new self. It's progressive. Calvin writes, in proportion, as the earthly life declines, does the heavenly life advance? He even says, for the reprobate man, too, the outward man decays, but there's nothing to compensate for it. As I was thinking about this, um, something that came to my mind is a book written by Oscar Wilde, Maybe some of you have seen a movie based upon it. It's called The Picture of Dorian Gray. If you're gonna watch the movie, watch the one from 1945 with Angela Lansbury and the more recent one, not so great. But in this story that Oscar Wilde tells, Dorian Gray is a handsome gentleman, just a beautiful man. And his friend, uh, Basil, paints his portrait. And as Dorian is looking as a young man, looking at this portrait, he says, how sad that I shall grow old and horrible, but this picture will never be older. If it were I who was to always be young and the picture that was grow old, I would give my soul for that. And of course, in the story, what happens is he sells his soul essentially to the devil. And as time progresses and decades pass, Dorian Gray, as he ages, supposedly in years, he looks just as beautiful, just as handsome uh, as he did as a very young man but he takes this painting his friend had made and he sticks it in an attic somewhere, hides it from people. And what's happening to the painting in the attic is the man in the painting is aging. The man in the painting is Dorian Gray lives a very evil life where he's abusing women, he's killing and blackmailing. Not only does the painting age, but also just the hideous grotesqueness of his character is reflected in the painting. And so it's hidden in the attic. He looks beautiful, the painting looks awful. I know I need to finish the story. In the end, he like slashes the painting and it becomes beautiful and he becomes hideous and ugly and happy endings for everybody all around. Um, but as I thought of this story, it so reflects the idea that Paul is getting here, except for it's the opposite, is that in our case, as the world looks at us, we're getting old. <laughs> but as the world looks at us, not only are we physically getting old, as the world looks at us, we are the despised, the deplorables. We are the ones who, you know, 
are weak. Look, the Taliban is the, are the mighty ones. They're the ones that got all the guns and they're the ones that are winning and they're the ones hunting down the collaborators and trying to find the church. And so outwardly, the church, the believers, we just look decaying and, and wretched. And yet there's an inward hidden reality like the painting in the closet. And in our case, is the outward self is declining as we're in this world which is in rebellion against God and is affected by sin Yet the inward reality of who we really are is becoming more and more beautiful, more and more attractive, more and more glorious, as we're going to get to in the next verse. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's what the Lord is doing. And it's happening all the time. The hidden person of the soul is being transformed by God. And that's the real you as we keep going. So even though your outward self may be decaying and may be oppressed in this world, your inner self is being renewed. And then verse 17 for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, Paul is not denying affliction. And actually, if anybody knew much about affliction, it would have been Paul. Spurgeon writes, perhaps someone here thoughtlessly says, well, whoever calls affliction light must have been a person who knew very little of what affliction really is. Well, if you've been paying attention... (laughs) You know when Paul said in verse 8, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted, not forsaken. As Charles Hodge says, remember who is saying this and under what circumstances. And this is something really common in Scripture, and that is to make a point, something that seems really, really big is compared to something really, really bigger. Something that's important is compared to something more important. Uh, The example of the parable of the unmerciful servant where uh, the man is owed 100 denarii, but he owes his master 10,000 talents. And I used to read that like 100 denarii, what's that? 100 denarii is a third of a year's wage. That would be like $25,000, maybe 50 in South Charlotte, but you know, it would be a lot <laughs> to people in our culture. And so it seems like a lot until you weigh it against 10,000 talents, which is billions to us. And so the point being made is the forgiveness we've received is greater than any forgiveness we could ever offer. Uh, another example would be if you're about to leave your offering at the altar and you have uh, your brother says something against you, first you'd be reconciled. It's like as important as it is to make an offering and to worship God, it's even more important that you be reconciled to your brother. And so as, as Paul is saying, your suffering is real. My suffering is real. And we are suffering one way, the most terribly for some, is suffering because of our connection to Christ. And there are thousands of believers all over the world who are suffering terribly. Actually, in Paul's case, though, a lot of Paul's suffering came from people who claimed to be Christians, people who slandered him, people who criticized his ministry, people who didn't appreciate him. And sometimes for us, the suffering that hurts the most is the bullets that come from behind us by the people who are on our side. And there's no place I personally have witnessed this more than in social media, where I see people who were once, I thought, my friends and friends of each other, and they're tearing into each other with no grace and, and, and no respect. And, and so the suffering is real, just suffering being in a fallen world and all the things that go with it. And for some of us, your, your loyalty to Christ and you have an unbelieving spouse and they just don't like you and they may leave you because you've put Christ first or your loyalty to Christ that causes your children who don't walk in the faith as they become adults and they may shun you for not embracing their lifestyle and their beliefs. 
And so the suffering is great. The point is the glory is greater, just as we read in Romans 8, where Paul, in a similar way, says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And so it's also interesting, this word glory in verse 17, uh, I think would bring to mind for many people the Hebrew word, chavod, uh, for glory in the Old Testament, and it, it gives a picture. Matthew Henry points this out. He says, put the heavenly glory in one scale and their earthly suffering in another. Then they would find their afflictions to be light. And so I'm picturing this scale. I was trying to figure out how do I illustrate this? And the first thing I thought of would be like an elephant compared to a feather. Like all of our earthly suffering is like a feather and an elephant is so much greater. And so that's what the comparison, the proportion is more or less correct, but it doesn't make the point. So then I thought of another way to put it, and that would be the elephant actually represents our present suffering. And you put that on one side because elephants are really big and heavy and messy, right? And yet you put an aircraft carrier on the other side of the scale. And it's saying as great as your suffering, as weighty, heavy as your suffering is now, the glory that God is producing through your suffering is so much greater that it makes the elephant look like an ant. That's what he's getting at. It's, the language in the Greek also, it's like incomparably incomparable. It's wonderful. Spurgeon also points out it's very light compared with what we deserve. <laughs> the suffering that Christ bore for us on the cross. And it's very light compared to the sufferings he endured for us, as Hebrews says, because of the joy set before him. And, and again, there's something else in this verse, like the verse 16 that I love. It's another progressive present. It is preparing for us. Another translation says it is producing for us. And so the suffering is not wasted. The suffering is productive. It's doing something good. And again, getting my mind around this, um, I've some of you have heard of Bitcoin. I still do not understand Bitcoin, but I, somehow people set up computers that are doing Bitcoin mining and they just sit there and suck up energy and do something and people get wealthy making Bitcoins. Well, I understand gold mining and oil production. I'm from Texas. And similar point is that what you're doing is productive. You're, the, the suffering you're enduring is producing something, gold, it's producing things better than gold. It's producing heavenly treasure in growing measure. And it's all to the glory of God. And so it's, it's through our suffering. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so this production that takes place as we suffer to the glory of God, as we suffer for Christ, I think even as we suffer the afflictions of living in a fallen world in a way in which we're trusting him, it's productive suffering. I think it was David Pallison, I think along with John Piper, who wrote an article one time, said, don't waste your cancer. And the point would be, if you're going to get cancer, you might as well benefit from it spiritually. Um, not all suffering is productive. It's suffering which is for the glory of God. Peter also says, continuing in verse 14 of 1 Peter 4, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. And so 
not all suffering is productive, but the suffering to the glory of God is. And this is very practical. The person who's dealing with the chronic pain, the person who's dealing with rejection in relationship because of their loyalty to Christ, when the sorrow and the pain and the loneliness, the betrayal seems so overwhelming, as we contemplate the weight of glory, we pictured that scale where, yes, this is heavy, but there's something being produced that is heavier and greater and more wonderful. It's something eternal. And as we fix our eyes upon that, it enables us to not lose heart, but to endure. I was converted as a teenager by the grace of God in the early 70s. And I remember when I was in a large group at a conference and they sang Amazing Grace. I don't think I'd ever heard Amazing Grace before. And the last verse, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining is the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And it was like as a 14, 15 year old, all of a sudden that hit me, the reality of it, is that whatever this life, for it's three score and 10, 70, 80, 90 years, whatever God gives us, that there's something that is everlasting, that is wonderful and glorious to anticipate. And this is what helps us not to lose heart. The inner man is being renewed, our suffering is productive to share in the glory of Christ. And then finally in verse 18, that already your focus is shifting. As we look not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are transient, but the things which are unseen are eternal. And so he's talking about this shift of of looking. He says, you've looked away from something. And I'm glad we have uh, families here. And some of you parents, have have you ever heard something when something's on your television or on a screen and you tell your kids, don't look at that, look away. Too often, right? Shouldn't look at that. That's kind of what Paul's saying, look away from this thing, look at that other thing. And when you're suffering, this is something really hard to do. We're supposed to turn our eyes away from that which is seen and is visible. And the problem is what is seen and is visible can seem so real to us. And the unseen heavenly realities don't seem real. And Paul is saying we need to shift our eyes to have exactly the opposite focus. Uh, When you're suffering, when you're in pain, when you've been hurt, you can dwell upon that and it will drain you, it will exhaust you. And he's saying to shift your attention away from that to eschatology, to the, the, the unseen things. Uh, it can even be in a more worldly sense, as you see a world in which Islam is willing in this part, winning in this part of the world and communism is winning in this part of the world and they're suppressing the church and they're persecuting Christians. When you see evil people with wealth and power, when you see Christianity mocked in every possible form of media and evil being promoted and you, you keep looking at that and you're looking at that and, and then you're listening to talk radio and you're watching a certain news channel and boy, it's just making you so mad. That which I see is so terrible. We say, well, maybe you ought to change the channel. Maybe you ought to look away from that and look at something better that will do your heart good because this world is going to continue to be a decaying world. It's going to continue to honor that which is dishonorable. It's going to continue to dishonor that which God regards as honorable. This is the same thing that happens in Psalm 73 when the the psalmist is, is frustrated because of the prosperity of the wicked. And he says he almost stumbled, but then as he came into the presence of God, he saw their, eschatology, right? He saw their end. 
and you've set them on slippery places. In the end, those who mock God, those who persecute the church, those who treat the things of God as of little value, in the end, they will pass away. And so by faith, we need to gaze upon eternal realities. Hebrews 11 talks about a whole list of people like Moses, who had opportunity to have all the world has to offer in the Pharaoh's palace, but instead he had faith in the kingdom yet to come, which from the standpoint of sight was, seemed to be impossible, but he trusted in the promises of God. When John says, one day we will see him face to face, we will see him as he is, and we will be like him, these are the hope, these are the realities, and and what Paul is saying is these are more real as now we, we make the choice. Like Colossians 3 says, to set your mind on things above where Christ is. When you're, you're making a decision rather than just letting your mind go on autopilot. It's like Philippians 4 says, you know, whatever is good and true and right and honorable, dwell on these things. You're, you're tempted to look at the wrong stuff and then it, it makes the suffering worse. It never makes it better anyway. And the unseen realities, they are more real and they are superior. And so in chapter five, that's all Paul will say. We walk by faith, not by sight. By faith, we can go up into the attic and see the picture of who we as believers really are being renewed day by day. We can anticipate the new heavens and the new earth. We can anticipate being without sin. We can, be anticipate, we can anticipate being, as Philippians 3 says, in bodies that are glorious and no longer suffer in a reality in which every tear will be wiped away, in which Christ will be triumphant. This is the reality, not what's happening in the news today. We will be sharing his glory. And sadly for those in the world, they're the ones as they continue to rebel against God, there's another unseen reality for them and that is the wrath of God. Hell is an unseen reality, but it's a reality. And they live their whole lives as if this is all there is and there's nothing afterwards and it's tragic. And yet we have a savior who has come to deliver us from that. Again, that's the great reality which God has revealed in his word that God sent his son into the world to bring redemption, that Christ came to die for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. He came to take the, the hideous, grotesque, sinfulness of, of who we are and to bear the penalty of that in himself and then to give us his righteousness, to give us his beauty and to give us eternity with him. This is practical eschatology. This is what's, it reminds you what's worth investing your attention. It's worth investing your life in these things. And so eschatology is useful um, and this is part of human nature that's true of all of us, even unbelievers. So if you tell a child that his birthday's coming up and he's going to have a great party, or if you tell a child, we're going to Disney World next month, and we look forward to stuff, and it kind of helps you get through the drudgery of life, doesn't it? And yet even those little eschatologies, those little looking ahead to things that are pleasant, they can let you down and they will end. But we have something glorious that will be better right now than we can possibly comprehend. 
no matter how much time you spend thinking about heaven and being with Christ and what you will be in that day, your mind can't fully grasp it. And it's, it's wonderful. Some of you have heard of the coach Mark Richt, who was the former Georgia and Miami head football coach, college coach. And he revealed recently that he had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. He's a believer. He said, truthfully, I look at it as a momentary light affliction compared to the future glory in heaven. Thank you, Jesus, for promising us a future blessing of a glorified body that has no sin and no disease. The Apostle Paul, in the world's estimation, seemed to be kind of an unenviable failure. He had a promising career that he gave up. He lost everything that he might serve Christ. And yet the real test of his apostleship is not what people see now, the visible glory, but it's the glory that is yet to come. And so we don't lose heart. And again, from the passage, just to remind you, it's not just think about the future, it's actually God right now is renewing you. God right now is producing glory through your affliction. And God right now wants you to look upon and think upon all that is ours in Christ and to believe as the Spirit helps you by faith that these realities are more real, they're more important, they're more lasting than all the realities of the world around us. And if you've not yet committed your life to Christ, You may, like Dorian Gray, appear to everybody in the world like everything's going well for you. But the hidden picture of who you are is one who's not been reconciled to God, is one who still lives in sin, is one for whom the future holds the wrath of God if you don't repent. My appeal to you tonight would be repent and believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You give up nothing worth having to gain Christ. And you gain everything as you turn to him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way on the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on you. And he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for hope that we would not lose heart. And you know the needs of your people tonight who can hear my voice. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them with eschatology. You would encourage them with the certainty of what you're doing now in renewing us and producing that which is glorious. Help us to look upon the heavenly realities as more real than this earth which is fading away. And for those who are still living for this world, give them eyes to see ears to hear, that they might know you're a God of mercy and grace if they would but turn to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.